Hi, this is Steve Andres. I'm the pastor of New City Church, and this is our podcast. Every week at New City, we invite people to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and learn how to make a difference. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope that this message inspires and challenges you to love God and serve your city more. If you want more info on New City Church or other resources, go to newcity.life today. But for now, enjoy this message. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 says this. One day, as Jesus was, walk, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were wa washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to the shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading and the hearing of your word today. That when we leave this place... We wouldn't just be the people who've listened to your word, but the people who've responded to it and who have obeyed it. Let that be the case. Grant us grace, God, today to be able to have open ears and open hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Now, it was an event that historians recognize as a world-changing moment. As a matter of fact, everything that you and I know today might have been different had things not gone this way at what was called the Battle of Marathon. It happened in 490 B.C., and it really changed the course of civilization as we know it. There were two main groups of people that we could talk about here. You may have heard them before, but I'll just kind of... The Persians were invading Greece for the first time, and when the Athenian army, those are the Greeks, when the Athenian army went out to meet the Persians at a place called on the Plains of Marathon... Everyone expected that the Persians were going to win. And to everyone's shock, the Athenians prevailed in the battle and completely routed the Persians. Now, back in the city of Athens, where this army was from, the Athenians, they, they were preparing for the worst because they too expected their army to lose, which is a bummer when you think your own guys are going to lose. But it was important then, once the Athenians experienced victory, they needed to send word back, the good news that they had won the battle, they needed to send that word back to Athens to avoid the panic and the looting and the chaos that was already developing. So they sent a single runner from Marathon all the way to Athens, just over 26 miles. And when he arrived in Athens, he was only able to say one word. Nenike Kamen, all right? Now, that's a Greek. It's actually, a, it's actually one Greek word put together, but it means we've triumphed. And then he died from exhaustion. Now, 
You might have recognized a little bit in that phrase that I mentioned in the Greek. It's not like I'm a fluent Greek speaker or anything else like that. Um, but but uh, that one word, Nike, you might recognize from the brand, the shoe brand. Nike actually comes from that. It means triumph, and that was kind of the word that he was saying, that the formulation of that word, that we have triumphed. And then this is also why you might even know this. Uh, you know, some of you guys were picking up on it as I was telling the story. This is also why we have what's called a marathon run that is strangely, for some reason, nobody ever could explain this unless you under this, understand the story, 26.2 miles, which is the distance from Marathon to Athens that this guy ran. But then he died. So this is when I wonder who the bright light was <laughs> that said, that guy died. So why don't let's get a bunch of us together and try and do the same thing, you know? Because it feels like when he died, it should have been a warning don't try and do that, right? Now, this is the thing. The purpose behind this marathon run was to announce the good news of that victory. Now, e even from a, a little bit later in time, about 500 years later, we have inscriptions that say this. This is the beginning of the good news of Caesar Augustus. When it's translated, that same word that's used in the Greek, euangelion, is, is translated as gospel. So it's almost like we have, this is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, which sounds strange to most of us because we wouldn't think it. But that word gospel or good news, it was used at that time in the Roman Empire to, to talk about the announcement of the arrival of a king. So when Caesar in the Roman Republic was elevated to become the emperor, they sent heralds out to the far corners of the empire then to announce the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the good news that Caesar was now king. And it was expected that with that announcement, everybody who would agree to it and embrace it would be saved from destruction and adjust their lives around this. There was no hashtag, not my emperor. It just wasn't a thing, right? You, you either re, you know, received the news or you were in trouble. And so if you re, are reminded of that, of that announcement, of that this is the good news, this is the gospel of Caesar Augustus, then it makes it even more striking when the gospel of Mark, G, the story of Jesus that Mark wrote, it makes it even more striking when that whole gospel starts out with this phrase, the, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? That into this, uh, you know, into our vernacular, into our vocabulary, we, we hear the word gospel and we think of, you know, or, you know, like some, some other, like, you know, or gospel, you know, you know, like, you know, black gospel music or some other, you know, like we think we, we have some baggage with that word. But if we take it back to the, its intent in the scriptures, it was the good news, the announcement of the victory and the ascension of a king whose rule now everybody had to adjust to. Jesus was being announced as a king whose arrival meant the end to what had been a long and terrible battle. And so the good news in the New Testament is not about our individual forgiveness. When we talk about the gospel, it's about how God has forgiven me. Well, yes, that's one of the byproducts. But the real good news is that there's a singular event that changed history and that you and I now have the opportunity to embrace it and adapt to it. 
And then, even more striking still, is when Jesus said at the end of Mark's gospel, go into all the world and declare this good news to every creature. Now, Jesus wasn't just coming on the scene to offer teachings about God. This is the striking thing about, about every story, every gospel account, every, every biography that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It, it, there, there's, there's included in this are the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself was very clear that he wasn't just here to point the way to God, just like every other good teacher that we can point to in history. Jesus actually made the claim that he himself was the way, the truth, and the life, and that it wasn't his teaching that was going to save, but it was his actions that were going to save us. You see, because if it's his teachings, then it's dependent on our ability to understand and apply them to our lives. But if it was his actions that actually made the change in history, that it's his actions that are unchanged, and you and I just simply have the opportunity to adapt to them. So Jesus, in the text that we've been talking about for these past few weeks, he's recruiting some folks who are ultimately going to be his heralds, his the people who are going to go and announce the good news. And thankfully, as we talked about, Peter and his friends say yes to Jesus in Luke chapter 5. But in Luke chapter 9, we see this thing now. Uh, uh, that, uh, don't worry, I'm not, I'm, I'm, this, this sermon is a little different. We're just going to bring it to a, a close here in, in not, actually not too long. In Luke chapter 9, it says this. It says, Jesus called the 12 together, speaking of James, John, and Peter, and then nine other guys. And he, it says, he gave them power to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And so basically, he gets his tight group of people together, and he says, now you've seen me do it. Now I want you to go do it. And that's exactly what happens. They actually go out and they come back rejoicing. And they're saying, like, they're saying this to, to him. They're saying, man, can you believe it? It actually happened. And this is still, in a sense, what gospel announcement has something to do with. It has, it has something to do with this. Persuade people to, to receive and to believe and to receive the truth, right? It has to do with setting people free from things that have been holding them captive, and it has to do with mending the fabric, the healing that Jesus saw, mending the fabric of bodies and lives and communities. That's part of what we do as gospel good news heralds. And so even in our church, over and over, we come back to this four-step journey that I think really encapsulates what we're talking about, that we, we say that we want to invite people and help people to know God, to find freedom to discover purpose, and then to make a difference, to be a part of that gospel announcing, if you will, and gospel acting out in our culture. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. But think about this. Jesus gives the 12, these 12 folks, he gives them the disciples, uh, these disciples the authority to do this. And I think it'd be easy for us maybe at that moment to say, well, that's all well and good. Those are the big 12, right? These are the pros, Right? They were with Jesus for the three years. They, were, you know, they, they, had their, they, they, they had their training and all that. And isn't it good that we still have some folks who've been trained to do ministry and let them take care of stuff, right? But this is what happens in the next chapter in Luke chapter 10. 
It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and every place where he was about to go. So it wasn't just the big 12 and the pros. He actually expanded the circle, and he gives a very particular, the, the, the Bible gives, Luke gives a very particular number here that he sends out 72. So now we know it's not just about the professionals who are supposed to be announcing. That specific number appears in Genesis 10 at the, at the, at the list of the world's nations and I'll just, you'll just have to trust me on this. It, it gives a list of 72 nations. And so it's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, I picked out the 12 because these are the guys who are going to be used particularly to represent God's people, Israel. But the 72 that I'm sending out, that's everybody else. <laughs> that's the whole gospel for the whole world is what Jesus is really talking about. And so every single person who actually comes into relationship with Jesus is engaged in this effort and this responsibility to share the good news. As a matter of fact, every one of us, if we want to think of ourselves as disciples, which we should, has been called in, in a sense, by the radical love of God. By the immense and amazing love of God, we've been called radically in. When, when Jesus tells Peter and his Friends, remember this in our text. It says when he tells them that he's going he's gonna, to uh, make them fisher, fishers of men now, they don't say this. They don't go, oh, finally, I knew that I had it in me to do this. And I just was waiting for, <laughs> waiting for him to notice that I'm the guy you should choose. You know, it wasn't that. At that particular moment, Peter was falling at, his, at, his, at Jesus' knees saying, please get away from me, God, because I'm not Lord, I'm not worthy of you. Right? And so there is something radical about the fact that Jesus has selected these guys and said, even though you don't deserve it, I am calling you close to me. And that's the truth for every one of us here. That's why when we worship, it gets a little, it gets a little real in here sometimes because, because the grace of God, when we truly understand it, is almost mind-blowing. As a matter of fact, it's been said that you might not truly understand the grace of God until it becomes really hard to understand. So, Jesus says, I'm going to call you in, and that's a miracle that should always amaze us. If my response to somebody asking me, hey, are you a Christian, is, of course I'm a Christian. I do everything I can to be a good Christian, then I probably miss the point. Because being a Christian isn't something that I do. It's something that is happening to me and in me and through me by the grace of God. But at the same time that we are called radically in, God actually sends us radically out. And that's always the way it is with Jesus and his disciples. And then all throughout the Bible, you could look at every instance where God has called somebody unexpectedly, Abraham, you know, out of nowhere. Hey, Abraham, I want you to come follow me. And then it sends him out with Moses where the burning bush is there and, 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 and God calls Moses close, but then says, now I'm going to send you out. Isaiah, if you look at the text in Isaiah 6 where, 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 where uh, God basically touches the lips of Isaiah and heals his unclean lips, the way the Bible talks about it. And then he says, now I'm sending you out. So it's almost like this, this, uh, this kind of like accordion motion where God pulls us in and then he sends us out to do the work that he has called us to do. 
almost like this. I'm going to call you in so that I can meet all of your most significant needs. I'm going to call you in so that I can heal you, so that I can work in you, but then I'm going to send you out because now that you have had your needs met, your focus doesn't need to be completely on you. Now you are freed up to do the work that God has called you and me to do. Find out where the fabric of the world and where the fabric of communities and where the fabric of lives is ripping and tearing and then go there to mend it. God says, I provide for your needs. Now you can be a blessing. Not just in general, but this is the beauty of it. In a very specific way, your life, my life has been shaped to be a blessing. You see, uh, when we do go through growth track, we talk a little bit about this in depth, but I'll just give it on the high level right here. We talk about this, that, that your passions are, are one of the ways that you have been designed. Like just the things that come natural that you care about. Some personalities are, are more inclined toward leadership. Some personalities are more inclined toward compassion and mercy. Some personalities are, are inclined, you know, like you're passionate about hospitality. You're like, oh my goodness, I walked in here and only five people greeted me, and there should be 15 people who greet, you know, just so that we, whatever your passion is, that's your first indication of the way God has specifically designed you to be a blessing. But there's this other thing. It has to, I'm, I'm calling it your proficiencies. I had to really pull a, cogn like a, a good, a good uh, synonym out there because, like, the ways that you have been skilled, the ways that you've been trained, the things that you're good at, those are very specific to you, and that's a great indication of maybe some of the ways that God might make you a blessing, that you have certain proficiencies and skills in your life. But here's the one that nobody expects. The third one is this, your pains. The things that you have walked through that you didn't want to go through and that almost broke you, and that you thought you wouldn't be able to survive, or you thought you wouldn't be able to get beyond, let me tell you, those pains now become a source of blessing. It's because out of that place of your deepest wound often comes your greatest gift to other people. And so just watch this. Everything about those things, your pains, your proficiencies, your passions, they all are a part of what makes you specifically designed by God to be a blessing. And so Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I, I love it. It's like you are custom made to be a blessing. Everybody customizes their orders nowadays. Even at like fast food places, you could say, no onions on that. No, I want that. You know, and substitutions. Every, I always, there's, I don't know if I've ever just ordered something off the menu without asking for some kind of substitution or change. Like, hey, I'll have the Caesar salad, but instead of the croutons, could you give me like a burrito or something like that? Like, that, like we're always trying to make these wild, like sort of like left turn sort of substitutions. And, and I, I love it because we're all, these are all, we are all the same people that we, we claim to be practicing like mindfulness every day. You do yoga and whatever. You're like, I accept all things except gluten and dairy, you know. And so we have to, like, customize everything. And that's the culture that we live in. But I just love it that God, it was the original custom maker. He customized you. He customized you. He has custom made you and your life and your skills and your experiences, even your losses. He has custom made you to be a blessing. You're designed by God to be used in this way. And because God has called you in by his grace, he is going to send you out too. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Now, the word that Paul would have been, that would have been in Paul's mind in the Hebrew as a, as a, 
as a Hebrew scholar, really, for Paul, would have been shalom. Now, he wrote this in Greek, but the, the, the word that he would have connected to is shalom. It means peace. But it's not peace in the way we think of it, like the absence of conflict. That word has this picture attached to it. When we say shalom, it, it has this picture of completeness and wholeness and healing. So when we talk about the peace of God, we're not just talking about the absence of conflict or friction. We're talking about fullness and wholeness and healing. And this is the vision that the scriptures give to us of what God is doing in the world. In Romans 16, Paul says, now, may the God of, the, the God of peace, we, he is soon going to crush Satan under his feet. He says, he's the God of wholeness and completeness and healing. And this is what you have since you have been justified by faith. This is what God is doing in our world, the peace project, the shalom project, bringing wholeness to humankind and to the world through us, his people. So what would it mean today for you if God were to bring his peace to your life? What would it mean to your relationships? What areas of brokenness are you experiencing today? Where are you wounded or incomplete that if God were to bring his peace to you today, you would see change. Where is sin, where, where is, where is um, sin still in control in your life? What would it look like if God's peace visited you? And then I want you to think about this. What would it look like if God's peace were to be visited on others through you? Not some abstract idea, not some just emotional response, but what if, what if you and I, real people in real places, began to, to live out and live in the peace of God? And, and parents and children who, who, had been, who had been at odds with one another were reconciled, and, and people groups who were caught in cycles of violence were, were, were once again uh, taught to respect and to care for one another. How about even the land that is suffering being healed and made fruitful again? What if we were actually able to see shalom God's peace at work through us, what would it look like? I think it's an important question. And kind of at the tail end of this series that we've been talking about, New City, I want to just tell you that this is really what's at the heart of what, what we are praying about and wanting to, to see happen in our little community here called New City Church. We want to see the peace of God at work in us and through us. And so we've talked for, you know, for many weeks, many, many times I'll be talking about that, how it applies to us internally, but then every once in a while I want to remind you what our, what our intentions are and what our strategy is as we look outside of our church and say, okay, God, how do you want to work peace through us? Locally, nationally, and globally. So, you know, we, we as a staff, we have... We started this, we're starting this thing called Tackle Tuesdays where Tuesday are the days where everybody's like trying to knock out all of their uh, assignments, you know, as much as they can get done. And for me, I realized that my Tuesdays are talk about it Tuesdays because I spent the entire day back to back on phone calls. But I'm energized and tired at the same time at the end of the day because many of my phone calls are to people who are serving in other places, partners of ours who are around the world, partners of ours who are, who are you know, serving in other cities or doing whatever else. And, 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 you know, just the idea that we are connected more than just New City, but looking with 
with, uh, with an eye toward bringing God's peace and seeing that enacted in different places where there is great need. That's what we are trying to do. So let me give you the framework that we've established. Some of you have seen this before. I'm going to bring it to you again because I want you to be reminded of it. It goes like this. Our first, the first thing that's a part of our framework is this, planting. Because we really believe that the church you know, it's been said before, the church is the hope of the world. And you say, well, what? Well, then what's the problem? Because there's a lot of churches around. <laughs> but I'm going to say it like this. The church is not just the hope. The church mobilized is the hope of the world. Because when we are coming to church for ourselves, when we are coming to church just to, you know, kind of receive something, and we Americans are, we are, the, we are just amazing consumers. We're amazing at it. And so we love consuming church just like everything else. But when we are actually mobilized, not just the church that we're having church, but the church that is mobilized with all of the gifts, like I talked about, the pains, the proficiencies, the passions that are now in service to God, being poured out, being worked out in love in, in and amongst us and through us to the community. The church mobilized is the hope of the world. So we want to be a part of planting churches. And that means supporting other church plants that may even mean in the future for us getting out there and actually looking at other places where we can plant new city communities, right? Whatever that looks like, and to be honest, it's going to be probably a both-and scenario for us as the years go on. That, we believe, we put that at the top of the list because I really do believe that God's people being God's people is exactly what the world needs. That's a good amen, yeah. Second thing, education. I, I, you know, sometimes I, I say this is equipping, but having to do with mentoring, preparing others to be a blessing, actually serving in places where there's a need. I'll, I'll tell you, one of, the, one, of the, one of the sad things, there's an epidemic of fatherlessness in this generation. And the bottom line for us is, I think if for the church to be able to fulfill its role in our culture, we're going to have to step up and actually begin to educate and equip and mentor and be available, uh, even when it gets messy, Right? And so that's part of our framework is we're going to be involved in investing in and supporting and partnering with people in education, equipping and mentoring. Thirdly, the arts. Because artists, believe it or not, are the ones who actually uh, sometimes are the ones who anticipate or maybe even direct where the culture is headed. They're the, they're the cultural prophets. And so to be engaged with them is to speak the language, is to learn how to speak the language of beauty to our culture. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing, compassion. To reach people at their point of need is really a key thing. So whether that means that we are supporting uh, works around the world that are, in, you know, kind of intervening in crisis moments or whether that we're helping, you know, in, in feeding programs in places where there is need or whether that means like helping with lunch, food, whatever kind of compassion ministries that we can enact, we want to be a part of that. That's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing and the last thing is enterprise. I say that because I really want us to recognize how important it is that we nurture creative and responsible ways of building businesses and enterprise because we can do a lot of compassion ministry. We can do a lot of the things that might really meet people at their point of need, but if we want to elevate people and give them dignity, we've got to, we've got to teach them how to support themselves and to build into their own community, into our community. So we want to actually be involved in that. As crazy as that sounds, people are like, well, you shouldn't. You're a church. What are you getting involved in? I really think the church has a place in this to actually with wisdom and with love be actually be a part of facilitating and nurturing wise business practices 
in our culture. So that's, that's I'm, I'm going to say that's what it is. Now, you may have noticed if we put it in that beautiful, we should have justified it left. It's cool, but it says planning, education, arts, compassion, enterprise. Do you catch it? I know you guys are like, we're not dumb, Steve. We saw it right away. That's our peace project when we look outside of this church. I shared this um, the very first time that I kind of broke this down, and I want to I use this illustration again because it really matters to me. In 1952, the U.S. experienced the worst outbreak of polio in our nation's history. And, uh, uh, there were 58,000 cases of polio reported that year. 3,100, more than 3,100 people died, and over 21,000 people were left with some kind of debilitating paralysis, and most of those people were children. That was 1952. Three years later, there was a guy named Jonas Salk who produced a vaccine that actually was effective at blocking the disease. And it began to be introduced to populations around the world, and it ultimately erased. When we talk about polio today, there are kids, they, no, there's no fear that sets into our hearts like it would have been then. And the reason was because it has all but been eradicated from most nations. But here's the beauty of it. Jonas Salk refused to patent his vaccine, and he made no personal profit from it because he believed, this is what he said, he had a moral commitment to share it. He had a moral commitment to share it. Now, I, I want to say this. The Bible would say to you and me that we have access to a cure for a deadly disease that until God sent his own son always ended in death. And I want to suggest to you today that we have a moral imperative, a moral commitment to be people who will announce the good news of what Jesus has done, that once and for all there is a pathway to eternal life and that you and I are called to be people who are engaged in his peace project in all the earth. I want to suggest that the love of God for you and me creates in us a moral imperative to share with others. C.T. Studd said, I, some people want to, to run a mission. Uh, some people want to live with the, within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. I've, I remember reading that. Actually, I heard it first in a, in a song when I was a teenager, and I remember thinking that, man, I love that. Some people want to live within the sound of the church bells. He said, I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. I'm hoping that New City Church is filled with people who are radically called in and then who recognize that we have been radically sent out. See, the Bible says the good news is that when we couldn't get to God, He got to us. He pulled us in. It says that God's love is expressed to us in this, that while we were still sinners, it was Christ who died for us. We needed healing from a fatal disease called sin. And if it were enough for us to be good, if it were enough for us to be religious or to be wealthy or to be influential, if any of that could have healed sin, then somebody would have done it by now. But it's not enough. God had to send his son to take your and my place. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of his suffering, his death, and then his resurrection, you and I have access to that cure. I want to remind you today that God loved you and me enough to leave his place, to humble himself, 
to do for you and me what we never could have done for ourselves. 